Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. I am Greg Gregory, your host for today. And we're excited to have with us a gentleman today on the Teamwork Advantage who's going to share a very powerful story or a series of stories um, about teamwork, leadership, and the overall culture of things. And I I just got to read this here about Captain Charlie Plum. He's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy a former jet fighter pilot and combat veteran with over 74, with 74 successful missions over Vietnam. In addition, he helped launch Tom Cruise's career uh, in as much as he helped start the Top Gun School of Miramar uh, in California. Captain Plum was shot down over enemy territory um, on his 75th combat mission, and it was just five days, five days before he was scheduled to come home after his tour of duty. When he was able to upright his plane, he had uh, ejected uh, out of his F-4 Phantom jet and parachuted down to enemy hands. He was taken prisoner and tortured for over five years. Five years, eight months, 2,103 days, or as I calculated out, 50,400 plus hours in communist prison camps. He's returned and now shares his story widely uh, about winning through adversity. To date, he shared his story to over 5,000 audiences in the United States as well as around the world. Captain Plum joins us on the Teamwork Advantage to share his incredible survival story with an inspiring story that was over 40 years in the making and how some of what he learned in that prison of war camp can help us today in what we're dealing with. His military honors include the Silver Star, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, two Purple Hearts, and the POW Medal. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, Captain Plum. You are a true hero, regardless of what your book says. I'm no hero. Welcome. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm excited. I've, uh, I've known of you for years. We briefly met several years ago, and uh, you've always been an inspiration to me with your story and everything. I kind of want to just kind of go back and do this a little in a chronological order if we can. Uh, tell us a little about your, your history, your background. I mean, you grew up in Gary, Indiana, and moved a little bit and got to the Naval Academy. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, actually, I was born in Gary, moved to Kansas, and I, so I spent most of my grown-up years in Kansas. Uh-huh. Uh, age 17, I graduated from high school, wondering what to do with my life. My parents couldn't afford to send me to a real college, and uh, so I just sent my resume to everybody, the old shotgun approach. Right. Lo and behold, I got an appointment to the Naval Academy. I'd never seen the ocean. I'd never ridden in an airplane. (laughs) And and so I got on that Greyhound bus. And two days later, I was pledging to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Had no earthly idea what I was getting into. But it was a commitment. And uh, I learned a lot there. And obviously, I had a love for my country. And I was a patriotic kid. Um, But the Naval Academy taught me some of the things that I could do to serve my country. I'd always been fascinated with flying. And so when I graduated from Annapolis, I got an appointment to flight training, married my high school sweetheart from Kansas, and uh, and dragged her down to Pensacola, Florida, 
in Beeville, Texas, where John McCain was my flight instructor. Uh, went on out to San Diego, where I, I flew the first adversarial flights for the Top Gun School, and I was assigned the hottest airplane in the world, the F-4 Phantom jet. So flew 74 combat missions, and as you said, just five days before the end of my tour in Vietnam, I was shot down. Parachuted in enemy hands and uh, spent the next 2,103 days in communist prison camps. I can't even begin to fathom. And when I've heard your story and seen you uh, tell that story on video and around, your cell, I believe, was eight feet square on average? The, yeah, the average cell was eight by eight. And you had, you had, a, you had a very uh, elaborate toilet, I do understand. <laughs> it was a rusted out two-gallon bucket, basically, <laughs> that stunk to high heaven. You know, with, with no ventilation in a cell like that, you kind of live with, uh, with that. Right. And how many prisoners were in the camps where you were on a regular basis? Depended on the camp and, of course, depending on the time, because during that nearly six years, more and more prisoners were shot down. And so there were more and more in the camps. But it averaged anywhere from uh, 30 or 40 to, uh, well, in the Hanoi Hilton, just before we came home, we had all 591 of us in that camp. And of course, they, the Vietnamese at that time were trying to do things kind of like what was done in uh, World War II uh, with projecting images and messages by, um, you know, I think they, they called her Hanoi Hannah uh, to the troops and things like that, trying to make it sound like it was much worse than it really was. Did you know about those things that were going on at the time? Oh, yes. Uh, but it was all, you know, it was all their propaganda, but Hannah, right. we, listen, we listened to Hannah Hannah every morning. This gal would, would sign on uh, sometimes, uh, you know, 6.30 or 7 or more because we had no clocks or watches. We didn't know what time it was, but she would say, um, this is the voice of Vietnam. Good morning, air pirates. Um, and, and we thought she was trying to say pilots, okay? But when, you know, in the Vietnamese accents, they can't pronounce L's very well. And so they would call, and she called us obdurate American air pirates. Every morning we got that. And then of course she told us about how they were winning the war and shooting on so many airplanes and, and how wonderful the communist system was. So <laughs> that was part of their brainwash attempt. Right. And your um, your co-pilot in your plane. Both of you ejected out. Is that right? We did. Gary Anderson was uh, actually my radar intercept officer. Uh, he had no control of the airplane in the back, so he wasn't really a co-pilot. Sometimes mm -hmm. I call I call him co-pilot just because nobody's ever heard of an RIO. Uh, but he was back there uh, with the radar, and he would run intercepts on airplanes. And of course, a very valuable part of my crew saved saved my life more than once um, right. and so yes but uh, so gary and i both ejected we were both tortured and we both spent uh you know five years and nearly nine months in a prison camp and there's the key factor because you're talking about him as uh your radar uh team member there and how important are the other people that you come in contact with as a navy pilot uh, and everything. How important is the team that you work with, both in your cockpit, 
the crew and everything else. How does that all come together? Well, of course, we couldn't possibly operate without uh, a team. And uh, the finest, well, the, the finest team I ever played on was the Prisoners of War. And I'll tell you about that team. Yeah, I've bit. read about that. I want to know about that, too. But, the, but an aircraft carrier has 5,000 uh, personnel on board, and every, every one has a different job. The flight deck is just a, it's a, it's a ballet, you know. Uh, all these guys wearing mm -hmm. different colored uh, shirts, and each has a, a different job, and each job is just vital to the operation of the ship. And so, it's, um, you know, it, 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 it really is quite a change. In the prison camps, in the prison camps, we, you know, we were all uh, fighter pilots for the most part in that prison camp because it was an air war over North Vietnam. And the guys in the South, the, the, you know, the, the, the soldiers in, uh, in the South were not taken prisoner. They were killed. So we were the lucky ones. But wow. point, point is, we were all fighter pilots. So we were all uh, officers, at least for the most part. And, uh, and, and we were all educated guys. Uh, we had guys in there with PhDs and, and, and master's degrees from some pretty <clears throat> prestigious universities. But the key, the key was when we were shot down, we were all alone, individual, depressed. Uh, we, we'd given up and we, 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 were all, uh, we all felt very guilty about that, about giving up to the enemy. And I remember thinking, how can I ever go back to, to America and face my fellow fighter pilots or even my family and, and, and let them know that I failed so miserably in my mission? And so we all felt that way. Well, what, what happened, well, and I'll tell you the specific story, is I finally gained communication with a guy on the other side of the storeroom, and he passed a wire across that storeroom and into my prison cell. And I tugged on the wire and he tugged back and he sent me a code. It was a code where different tugs on the wire could be, represent various letters of the alphabet or abbreviations. And so we started to communicate. And, and, and I apologized to him because I assumed that I, was, that I was communicating with a guy who was smarter and older and a better pilot than I was. And I didn't want to, to admit to him that I'd failed so miserably. But I finally got up the courage and I said, Shoe, his name is Bob Shoemaker, I said, uh, I said I, 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 I'm going to admit something to you. And when I tell you what I've done, you may not want to communicate with me anymore. He said, what would you do, plumber? I said, I, I, I gave in. I surrendered. I, you know, I, 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 I spilled my guts to the enemy. You know, how can anybody respect that? Uh, he said, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. And, uh, and, and it, it, if you had done what I did and I knew about it, I wouldn't want to communicate with you either. He said, I said, I said, I broke. He said, hell, everybody broke. There's not a man in this prison camp who is as strong as he wanted to be. But we've got a war to fight here and we're not on the defensive. And we will pursue this war till our last dying breath. He said, we have leadership in this prison camp better than you will ever see. The rest of your life, you will never see the type of leadership we have here. And they have turned this whole thing around. You know, the, there's, there's no whining in this prison camp. Uh, pull up your big boy pants. We've got a war to fight. And, uh, and, 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 and that whole thing turned it around.
and some and and it really uh, the the statistics of this thing are really interesting because about a, a third of the guys and gals who are in Vietnam suffer from PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prisoners of war, four percent of us have PTSD, and the psychologists and psychiatrists and the folks that that know more about it this than I do, uh, think that it's because of that leadership that we had there that redefined our mission and, 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 and brought our team together uh, just so tight because we had that mission, we cared for each other, <clears throat> and we were, we were gonna go home with honor, which we did. How long after you were taken prisoner did you make that communication with Shoemaker? Uh, so just uh, maybe three or four weeks. Oh, wow. So real quickly. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And the coding messages that I've read in your book about the tugs on the wire were just fascinating to read and grasp the concept behind that. Yeah, it was, uh, but it was vital. And the truth of the matter is, um, the stuff that we were passing around, you know, was not the real key to the communication. The value, the life and death value of communication in a prison camp and I believe in teams, is the simple validation of another human being. Because in those prison cells, a lot of them are really dark. And, and, and uh, I wasn't in solitary confinement nearly as long as some, some of the guys were in solitary for four and a half years. Oh but God. eventually they gave me a roommate. But if you were in solitary and it was dark, you'd lose track. You wouldn't know what was a real memory, what was a hallucination. And you need a baseline. You need, need a, to somebody to validate your sanity. And the simple tugging on a wire and have that wire tug back really meant two things. Number one, somebody's responding to something I am doing physically, thus I exist. Number two, somebody cares about me. And I know you teach a lot of this in your, in, in your courses on teamwork, Greg, because you really have to validate other people. You have to care for them in order to, 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 to maintain that trust. And that's what happened in the prison camps. Right. You just hit a couple of points that are really key as far as I can, can tell. Validation of another human being. I mean, that's, that's critical, whether it's in a prisoner of war camp or it's across the hall or today with people working virtually so much of the time. You know, we've got to validate, validate that. And then it comes back down to a level of trust. How did you know that the person you were communicating with was not the enemy trying to do more harm to you? That's a very good question because it took a long time, even with that first uh, communication with Shoemaker, to trust that that wasn't the enemy on the other end of that wire. But the the more I got to know the enemy, the more I recognized that they weren't sophisticated enough to try to do this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're smart people, but they just don't have the sophistication that we had. And so, uh, the longer I got to know the, the enemy, the more I, I could understand, you know, that, that it was a trick or it wasn't a trick. You know, they tried to brainwash us in so many ways, but it, it just became laughable. It was, a, it was a point of great humor for us. Our, um, you know, when our, our call-up, when we tapped on walls and communicated with each other, was shave and haircut, you know, da 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 and then the other guy responds with that, that. And, um, and the enemy would try to do this, you know, they would, but, but they get, wouldn't get the rhythm quite right, you know, and they would go that, okay. that, 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 
<laughs> and, and we just laughed because they were trying to do something that they obviously didn't have the sophistication to do. So, uh, and it's, it's another language. I mean, there's just oh, no yeah. doubt about that because every culture has its own language. If we tried to do something in a Vietnamese time frame or on understanding, we would struggle with that as well. No question. So when you're not communicating with uh, Shoemaker or any of the other prisoners that are there, what did you do to keep your mind focused on getting home? Well, I began by going back through my life and I tried to do a, a mental autobiography. Of course, we had no paper, or pencils, mm -hmm. or anything like that to write on. But I, I went back to my very first memory when I was three and a half years old, and I played that, that forward until my shoot-down date. And, uh, and it took me about three months to try to recapture every book I'd ever read, every girl I'd ever dated, every movie I'd ever seen, every teacher I'd ever had, just day by day by day by day working working through that and so and and so after three months you know i felt like i had i captured every every memory in my in my mind uh and then i planned forward you know then i said okay the day i get out of here i'm you know my wife and her are gonna go here and there we did uh, do this i'm gonna have this duty station i plan the next 20 years of my life uh around her and, and what we would do. <clears throat> but then, you know, I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of little things that you do in your mind, and it's amazing how, how creative you can get when you don't have any distractions in your life. I, uh, I made a, a, a key, I'd always wanted to play the piano. And uh, I knew a little bit about music. I played the trumpet and French horn and knew a little bit about guitar. And so uh, w when I, uh, in a prison camp, I scratched out a piano keyboard on my board bed, and I, I would just practice chords and 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 uh, and scales uh, and simple tunes on this keyboard. And the really weird part of that was that if I put my finger down on the wrong note, I could actually hear the discord in my mind <laughs> because I, I had that keyboard. So. Um, you, you know, you just make up things. Uh, Do you play I, piano today, my question? No, I, I play the guitar, though. And, and <laughs> I did that, too. I, I found a stick of bamboo, and I made a guitar neck out of that and, mm -hmm. and fingered that. That's fascinating. It's the way we get, get through things. Um, you know, Napoleon Hill, and, of course, uh, you've got great books that he wrote about Think and Grow Rich uh, and all the other prison situations. It's just powerful about how we can keep our mind and how powerful the mind is uh, about thinking of those things. Let's back up if we can for a second. Tell us a little bit about flying in the Navy. Um, as a fighter pilot, it's different when you're flying, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 feet compared to the Marines and the soldiers that were on the ground. Now, in the North, you were, it was all fighter pilots, as I understood you correctly. Is that right? Yes, that's true. So how is it different? I mean, you're, when you're seeing things from way up high compared to somebody who's on the ground seeing things, what's the difference? What's the perspective like from uh, a leadership point, communications point, and information? How is that different? Well, it's, uh, yeah, obviously there's some similar similarities. Uh, 
but it, it but it's quite different. The air war is different from the ground war, war in in a lot of respects. Now, of course, we come together sometimes when air supports the ground troops, and I did right. quite a bit of that in South Vietnam. <clears throat> we would um, yeah, we had certain missions where we we would support uh, the Marines and the Army uh, down there, and the communication, of course, was vital in doing that because you had to know where the good guys were, and where the bad guys were. And so we did that in a lot of different ways. Um, we did that with, uh, with what's called a FAC, F-A-C, a forward air controller. And the forward air controller could be airborne or could be on the ground. Usually they were on the ground. Uh, and we would establish radio communication with these guys. And they would send up a smoke, a smoke signal to, to tell us where they were. And then it would give positions from that smoke signal that the enemies were, you know, three clicks at, uh, at, at, at 270 uh, uh, or something like right, that. Right. And so we would, we would be guided by those guys on the ground. <clears throat> and so, uh, so communication to make that team work was just vital. Uh, of course, it's a little bit different in today's world because it's all telecommunication and it's, it's all just, you know, it, it's unbelievable now how much more information we have. But the value of the team is still vital. And of course, you have to trust that guy on the ground to give you, uh, you know, the right bearings, the right distances. And then the guys on the ground have to trust that you're going to hit the right targets the way that you're supposed to. Absolutely. And that's the scary part, because, you know, if you if you aren't accurate, you may very well singe the mustache of that soldier on the ground. Yeah. Now, if we look at that, that concept about how that is back when you were flying. How does that apply to leadership today in corporate America? Well, you know, obviously communication is vital. It's, right. it's, you know, it's life or death. You have to be able to communicate and you have to, to, to know the heart and mind of members of your team. <clears throat> uh, and trust is also vital. If you can't trust your teammates and they can't trust you, then you're just never going to accomplish your mission. The trust has to go both ways. The unfortunate part about trust is it's a lot easier to lose trust than it is to regain it. Boy, the key word there is regain it. it yep. You can build it, but if you lose it, regaining it is extremely difficult. Sometimes impossible. Mm -hmm. And that's true in a corporate environment is true in a marriage it's true in uh, in in uh, education um and so it's just you know it's just uh, uh, amazing the things that you have to go through to keep uh, trust and you find a, a leader that's um you know th that everybody knows is cheating on the report you know everybody knows that they're lying to their boss and and they, you, you lose trust in that individual. And so it's just, uh, it's just vital to keep your nose clean in everything you do as a leader. Absolutely. And that, that's key. And that's part of what this whole podcast is about is, you know, uh, is understanding teamwork and leadership and how to do it. And that those two, when they're combined correctly with the trust, starts to create the right culture that you're looking at. And that's so powerful with every organization. Now, when you got out of the prison camp in, um, I think it was February of 73. So let's recap for a second. You were taken prisoner of war in 67, and you came out in 73. 
What were, how old were you during that time frame? Uh, when I was seven, I was 24. So I came back, I was 30. So that much of your life was pretty much just quarantined away, if you will. To quarantined away. 2020 yep. words, quarantined. Yep. So did you even know about the moon landing? Yeah, another interesting question you're asking. Uh, a lot of us were in, in the astronaut program. I was in the early stages of the astronaut program. Because mm-hmm. at the time, it was all fighter pilots. Right. You know, the, those were the only astronauts for fighter pilots. Shepard and, and Glenn so, and all those, yes. It was exciting. And I marched in, uh, in John uh, Kennedy's uh, inauguration parade. And soon after that, he made that famous statement, we will put a man on the moon this decade, not because it's easy, but because it's difficult. And we all signed on, you know, to the astronaut program. And then, of course, three years later, I marched in, in behind his, in his uh, funeral parade. And so we, but we knew at the time when he made that, that we did not have the technology. We did not have metallurgy. We didn't have anything that, that, that was going to allow us to get on the moon. So, so you got a bunch of fighter pilots in prison camp, okay? And, uh, and so 1969 came, and of course, we did not know. And December of that year was that four or five months after, I mean, everybody in the world know, knew by that time we'd mm-hmm. put a man on the moon, but, but, but we didn't. And so they, one of the propaganda things was to give us these little newspapers and not a lot of the guys didn't read them because it was all just propaganda. But, uh, but I was, but they slipped this thing under my cell door and, and, and the headlines were, not since Sputnik 1 has the USSR been farther ahead of the United States in the space race. I thought this is probably interesting. And so I read on down and it said, the, the, uh, the Soviet Union has sent a vehicle to the moon. It's gathered samples. It's uh, taken pictures. It's blasted off. It's returned to Earth. And unlike the Americans, we didn't have to put a man aboard to control the vehicle. I read that again. Unlike the Americans, we didn't have to put a man aboard to control the. And so I, I'm, I'm tapping on the wall to the guys next door, and uh, and I could hear them through that three foot wall, you know, cheer because we put a man on the moon. Uh, but but you know, a lot of times we didn't know who the president was or who won the World Series or anything else, uh, just mm-hmm. because we had we had no communication. So when you came out. In 1973, you had a wife waiting for you at home, and you were ready to go back and start your life. Tell us a little bit about after that. Well, that's what I thought I had waiting at home. My wife actually (laughs) filed for divorce just three months before I came home. She had held on tight for five years and then fell in love with another guy, and they were engaged to be married uh, when I uh, came back to the States. So, you know, one more. Shot down one more time, <laughs> but, uh, and I remember uh, I, was, I was in the hospital in, uh, in Chicago, at the, at the, Naval, uh, the Naval Hospital there at Great Lakes. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, man, this is, you know, terrible. I've, I've planned my, the rest of my life around this woman. What do I do now? And then I thought, well, you know, I've just been through, um, you know, nearly six years of, of this stuff, but, you know, here's another challenge. Surely I can, Surely I can, uh, I can survive this one too, which of course I had. Um, 
but so she went ahead and married the guy she was engaged to and they're living happily ever after. And I married a wonderful lady and we have four kids and four grandkids. So uh, amazing how these things work out if you have the proper attitude. Right. And again, I, I love the fact the the attitude concept of knowing what we're doing and being focused on it and not letting things knock us down. You know, one door closes, another one opens. We don't always see the one that opens is our, is our challenge. That's right. And we've all gone through that. Um, I was thrown out of a car at uh, 16 years of age and uh, flipped over pavement, thrown 75 feet. I was terrified to get in a car. My father told me, get back in that car. Get back, in, get when, back when, on when the horse. Knocked down, yeah, <laughs> when you get your blank knocked off of the horse, get it back up on the yeah, horse. That's right. That's was right. what dad told me. And <laughs> those are powerful words. So yeah. let's talk a little bit more. Now, you, once you're back and you stayed in the Navy for several years, you didn't retire from the Navy until, what, 1990? 91. Uh, and, uh, but actually, 14 years of that was in the Naval Reserve. And so I resigned my regular commission and mm -hmm. picked up a reserve commission when I came home. <clears throat> and and I, I continued to fly for the Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I still fly privately today. I have two little airplanes, an antique airplane from World War II and, a, and an experimental airplane that I fly. Wow, that's fun. I yeah. love those little planes. They're a lot of fun. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... When did you start speaking and telling your story? Because I know you, you wrote the book many years ago, and you had to be dragged and pulled to kind of write your story. But when did you start telling the story and getting in front of audience to share the power of this? I, I had no idea that would be anybody would have any interest in this story. In fact, I was still in the hospital in Chicago and, and uh, was at a press conference, and I told my story to a bunch of of photographers and reporters and on the way back up to my hospital room uh, this reporter sneaked in and uh, it, this was a guy with lines of anguish in his brow and tears in his eyes he said mr plum you really got to me in there he said i've had a miserable year my family is falling apart my wife is divorcing me i gotta have a terrible job i even wondered if i wanted to go on living he said you've given me hope well, I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't intended to give anybody any hope. I'm just telling a story here. This is what happened to me. You've given me hope. Right. And when I heard that, you know, I thought, well, maybe there's some value in that nearly six years that I spent in that prison camp. Uh, you know, maybe I can help somebody else. Maybe I can give somebody else hope. And so I started speaking uh, right, you know, right after I came home. And, um, you know, I, I did a couple of other things, uh, that you know, trying to to uh, to make a living, uh, and then I decided no, I I can do this professionally, and so I've <laughs> I've been speaking professionally, you know, since I came home. Well, that brings me to the question: Tell us about an incident that happened. I I believe you were speaking in Kansas City, back not far from where you uh, grew up, actually. Right. And you were in a restaurant, and there was a gentleman in that restaurant. Tell us about that. Sure. And this has been probably 10 or 11 years after I came home mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in a restaurant, caught a, a guy's eye, but didn't recognize him. He eventually stood up and came over to our table and he said, you're Captain Plum. And I said, yes, sir, I'm Captain Plum. He said, uh, you flew jet fighters over off Vietnam. Yeah. He said, part of that top gun outfit and you were shot down. You parachuted in enemy hands. You spent six years as a prisoner of war. 
Well, I was pretty dumbfounded. This guy was, you know, giving me my own history mm-hmm. and, 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 and I didn't know him. And so you I figured finally, he was probably an audience member at some point. Well, I, I thought that he might have, have been, although by that, yeah. I, I, but in any case, I said, how did you know that? And he said, I'm the guy that packed your parachute. So he was a rigger, what's called a rigger in the Navy, is a guy who rigs parachutes. And his job in, in the bowels of that air, aircraft carrier is to stand at a long wooden table and weave, weave the shrouds and fold the silk panels of these parachutes, and pass them along one after another, working you know, 12, 14 hours a day. While the jet jockey, you know, the top gun, zooms around the sky at the speed of sound. And, um, and I felt very embarrassed. Um, I, you know, I staggered to my feet, reached out a very grateful hand of thanks. I was speechless. And he came up with the proper words. He grabbed my hand, he pumped my arm, and he said, I guess it worked. <laughs> uh, well, we, we spoke that, that, you know, I invited him to our table, and we spoke for a couple of hours. A very humble guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And, his, and his point was, hey, of course, I was sh- showering him with accolades because he had saved my life. And, and I felt embarrassed because I, I flew off that aircraft carrier, you know, thinking that I was the most important guy on the ship. And turns out uh, that day he was the most important guy on that ship exactly. as far as my life was concerned. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I thanked him profusely and he said, no, I'm not the only guy who packed your parachute. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he said, you know, I, I, I did the physical parachute, but your mental parachute, all your teachers, your professors, your emotional parachute, your wow. mom, your dad, your big sister, your spiritual parachute, your preachers and teachers. He said, those things, you know, those folks uh, allowed you to live and survive, and they're just as important as I am. And so, and so uh, you know, that that spurred me on as well to try to reach the hearts and minds of people uh, with this whole idea that part of life, in fact, I think probably the most important part of life is service, you know, is, mm-hmm. is giving of yourself without yeah. asking anything in return. And, and I, I call that packing parachutes. And that's so true. And when we think about it every day in our work, whether it's uh, in a, a, a public sector, private sector, nonprofit families, we're packing parachutes for everybody else. We may not even realize the number of parachutes we actually pack in a day. That's very true. And not only that, but once you pack somebody else's parachute and then they pick up on that, you know, it, it compounds itself into thousands you know uh, so you're right and so and one, one of my points in my speeches is hey who packs your parachute and have you thanked them lately and so <laughs> uh, that's important too absolutely absolutely we were running out of time but there's one more story that i want to get to um and by the way if you all uh, listening to us have not checked out charlie's site on linkedin be sure to follow him on linkedin captain charlie plum Uh, He's been putting out a lot of great videos and little pieces dealing with the COVID virus. And I want to thank you for that. That's been inspirational. Those little segments there have just been powerful. And I enjoy listening and watching all of those. So I thank you. But I want to talk a little bit about what happened a few years ago. Um, 
Let's go back, and I think before we got talking, you told me it was April of 67, so a little less than a month before you got shot down. You'd been in a dogfight with a Vietnamese pilot. And tell us a little bit about that, and then tell us what happened many years later. All right. Uh, it was 24th of April, and it was a big, um, it was a big target. And I, I got shot up uh, by some anti-aircraft artillery. It uh, blew a hole in my fuselage and uh, set one engine on fire and, uh, and torched off a missile and kind of ruined my, ruined my day. And, and so I was... I was heading I like back. Express. I'm sorry, just ruined my day. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was heading back to the ship, and uh, and found that three MIGs, uh, three MIG 17s, uh, were attacked me, and and I thought that was unfair, also, you know, because I'm I'm, I'm limping home. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. So so we uh, we fought in, in you know in a dogfight in in a hassle there for what seemed like. You know, it seemed like it was an hour. It was probably more like four or five minutes. Um, and so I escaped with more holes in my airplane, made it back to the, and, and then they, the three of them shot everything they had at me and, and, and left. And uh, so obviously many, many, many years later, uh, I had an opportunity to go back to North Vietnam. They invited me back to meet uh, these fighter pilots that I, that I had fought against. And so we laid out a, a chart, an aviation chart, you know, on a table and tried to figure out who was here and who was there, who got the best of whom. And um, uh, it was very interesting, but probably the most interesting part, part was just the, almost the brotherhood, you know, mm -hmm. that we had with those guys. Uh, they'd forgiven me, I'd forgiven them. And we were, you know, both just, you know, uh, retired military pilots that fought for our country for a while and uh, really didn't have any any axe to grind with each other and so uh it, it was a wonderful event they invited me into their home and and uh you know i, I met their families and uh, it was really good the power of forgiveness is an amazing thing and that that's what i wanted to look at there um you know, over the years, you've, you've uh, suffered a lot of challenges and setbacks. As a mutual friend of ours, Willie Jolly, says, a setback is a setup for a comeback. Right. And every time when those setbacks happen, you find something to go with. And being able to go over to North Vietnam, sit down and share a meal with somebody who was trying to kill you and you trying to kill them. Yep. Just absolutely mind-boggling with what's going on in our world today. And um, the power of forgiveness. Can you just speak to the power of forgiveness for a moment? Absolutely. Uh, my mother was a very devout Christian and, uh, and, and a wonderful forgiving woman. And so she taught me about forgiveness. But the key, and I think that I learned more in forgiveness, it's not only a, a very good Christian principle, it's a survival principle. I found early on in that prison camp that I was so angry about, uh, toward the enemy, I was angry toward everybody, and I built up this this uh, uh, this acid in my body, and I I found out early on, and well, it took about three or four months, I guess. In fact, uh, in tapping on a wall or tugging on a wire, I can't remember which, a guy a guy uh, passed a um, uh, a quote to me, and the quote was this. Acid does more harm in the vessel it's stored than on the subject it's poured. 
what that meant to me was all this vitriol within me mm-hmm. was going to kill me. That wasn't going to hurt the enemy, you know, because I, I but I'm going to implode with all of this acid. And so to forgive uh, is actually a survival technique. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and I, and I try to, I try to do that every day. Sometimes it's difficult. You know, sometimes it's really impossible when somebody does you wrong. But if you can think of it as helping yourself by forgiving others and truly forgiving, you know, not, not harboring any ill will at all, truly forgiving someone else. Mm-hmm. And it sure works in my life. And that, that's true. I mean, I've done a lot over the years and I've seen people get so upset because somebody cut them off on the road or something like that. And they let yep. it bottle them up and the other guy's driven down the road and forgotten all about it. Yep. If we can let it go, then we're stronger for it. And, Absolutely. and that's, that's a powerful thing. And the fact that you've been able to do that with somebody who was in that situation, I think is amazing. Wow, this has absolutely been a thrill for me, a privilege for me, and uh, I can't tell you how excited I am to have had this opportunity to sit down and talk with you and hear more of your story and hear some of the parts of the story that I had not heard in the past. Interesting. you are a true pl- uh, a hero, and I'm just going to hold the book up here if everybody can kind of see it that's on the video. It's called I'm No Hero by Charlie Plum. And um, get a copy of the book. He outlines his story in amazing. And you can get that from my, my website, charlieplum.com, and I autograph every book uh, that I send out. So if you, if you want it autographed, uh, order it on the, my website. And I'll hold it up here if I can get it there. (laughs) So absolutely. Captain Plum, it's been a privilege on my side. I thank you so much for your time today. I know time is valuable, and I appreciate the time you've given us today on the Teamwork Advantage. Join us next week when we bring up another incredible story about survival, growth, determination, leadership, teamwork, culture. You'll have to wait to see who that's going to be. Take care until the next time. As I always say, be sure to make it a great day because a good day is only being average. And we know you're not average. Thanks again, Charlie Plum. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.